Hello everyone, Lachlan here. Just before we get started with this episode, yet another apology is necessary. Somehow, the recording from Ken's microphone this week has gone missing. With careful editing, I've been able to make this one reasonably continuous. But it is unfortunate that you've missed out on Ken's keen insights, so we look forward to him joining us again next time. Hello everyone, welcome back. We're glad that you're here with us again as we discuss the Covenant. And interesting topic for today's discussion. My name's Cameron, talking to you from Launceston, Tasmania. And I'm Lachlan. And this is Luke. Right. Well, we've we've looked over a fair few uh, topics in our discussion so far, sort of tracking through from Genesis, and we, we got up to uh, the story of Abraham, um, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons. Let's jump forward a little bit now and look at the, the nation of Israel. And uh, as, as the lesson does, the lesson discusses the covenant in relation to God's law. And Locke, you've picked out a, verse, a couple of verses for us to read. Yeah, this is Deuteronomy chapter 4. And it's really interesting. Last week, we looked at Exodus 19 and a story there. And that was the chapter before Exodus 20, in which the Ten Commandments are listed in that book. And here we're in Deuteronomy 4, which is the chapter before the Ten Commandments are listed again in this book. So there's some parallels here. And it's titled in my ESV, Moses Commands Obedience. That is an extra biblical heading that is put in at the start of Deuteronomy chapter 4. So why don't we read the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Sounds good. You lead off, Lot. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even the Ten Commandments. He wrote them on two stone tablets. Yahweh commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and ordinances, that you might do them in the land where you go over to possess it. Right, well, in... In, in in light of the 
of the resolution we frequently make to to reduce the length of our podcast. Uh, let's go around quickly and say what what struck. Just a quick summary: what struck you most from that reading? And uh, I, I might start. The bit that struck me most was the um, it's the the statement made to Abraham that his children, his offspring, would become a, a great blessing. And I found sort of allusions to that in that passage, where where God intended Israel to be uh, a place that where law prevailed, as opposed to anarchy or, or corruption, and uh, where He would be close to them, and that people were to aspire to be like them. The, there were two things that jumped out at me. So the first was this, I guess, almost key verse in the context of our discussion this quarter on covenant, verse thirteen. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. There it is, tying covenant to the law extremely explicitly. And I think this is probably the kind of verse from which my previous conceptions of the Old Testament covenant, prior to our discussions of the last seven weeks, have probably been most informed. So I'm intrigued to see it here after the journey that we've been on where I feel like I have grown in my perspective of an understanding of the covenant through looking at stories like that of Noah. So that jumps out at me and perhaps we need to talk about it a little bit. But the other thing that caused me to um, wander off in my mind was was right up earlier, the uh, verse 3, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. I found myself thinking, do I know that story? I don't recall it. And I followed the margin references in my Bible. And it's really interesting. It it essentially alludes back to Numbers 24 and 25, the story of Balaam and King Balak. Balaam, yeah, Balak so Balak said to Balaam, come now, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me, there, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And he, he seems to sacrifice on this holy spot of Peor and then at the, end, at the end of that story, at the end of the Balaam story, Balaam rose and went back to his place. But at the start of verse 20, chapter 25 of Numbers, some of the Israelites who lived there start to sacrifice to the local gods. For Numbers 25 verse 3. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, and, and there's a great plague. And at, at the end of verse 9, Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So there's a little bit of history that connects into this passage that we're looking at in Deuteronomy. So um, the Israelites, uh, Balak didn't actually need Balaam to, to curse the Israelites and bring misfortune upon them. They were quite capable of bringing misfortune on their own. Plenty. As, as we always are. Yeah. What struck me in the bits that we just read was um, verses 6 to 8, in light of the discussions we've been having around the the what it means to be chosen of God and the role that Israelite has as chosen of God, its purpose in the context of what we understand to be salvation for the whole world, you know, in the sort of messianic context, um, but also in the context of not being chosen to be special and get preferential treatment and all the rest of it, but chosen to have a job to do 
and the job is sort of outlined here, and the law is indicated to be a key component of that job, and 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 it's held it's held to be something which is going to amaze the world with with the wisdom and understanding of this chosen nation, and its and its righteousness of its law. Luke, I like what you said, and it it brought to mind. Uh, one of my very formative texts uh, that I that I was told as a young child that contains much spiritual wisdom, and of course I'm referring to Thomas the Tank Engine, uh, which was written, which was written by a reverend, and there's actually some very good theology in it. If you ignore some of the more dramatic um, television renditions and you go back to the original stories, uh, the stories don't have goodies and baddies; uh, they only have good engines who get full of pride or conceit or, you know, something, and they make mistakes. And mm. uh, the sign the sign that of restitution, when the thing that lets them know that they, that they, the thing that they're really striving for, the thing that, that is to them the sign of their success is when the fat controller says that they're really useful engines. And there is something really deep in our psyche, really reassuring it's really nice i mean i mean you know i was talking to some students today and um it was very obvious at the end of the conversation that their one life ambition was to get filthy rich uh and that's the ambition of many people but but it is also the case that there are many people out there religious and otherwise who are really looking for a job with meaning and purpose they want to make a a difference in this world they, they want a job to do and uh that's quite an exciting sort of calling it it may it may be less sort of gratifying than being promised buckets of cash but but it, no it's more gratifying it's in a different way yeah it may appear less gratifying at first glance but when when the two lives are lived and compared it it's fairly obvious which which is the one that is genuinely more more gratifying uh something else that just jumped out at me and uh it says in verse 2 do not add, do not add to what I commanded you, and do not subtract from it. Hmm. Mm. Yes, that struck me as well. And when we look at covenant in the broad, in the broad progression of Scripture, we've already noted that God's covenant with different people finds different expression, and the covenant with Noah is is fairly generic in terms of specifying a universal morality. The covenant with Abraham is highly specific. And then when the covenants are made at various times in Abraham's life, um, different elements are emphasized in different ways. And then we've also referred to the New Testament church, where the New Testament church sat down and looked at what what was really necessary for, for Gentiles in terms of observances for them to belong to God's church. And they they certainly did a bit of subtraction. Yeah, I have long uh, mused over the fact that the Jerusalem Council in Acts arrives at a conclusion other than, oh, just keep the ten. Because as a good Protestant Adventist, I have been trained to understand that in the Old Testament there are many laws, but that the Ten Commandments are the particularly special and everlasting ones. And so they would be the most natural answer to give in the New Testament Acts con- con- uh, context. You know, what do we require of them? Oh, just the Ten Commandments. That basically sums up everything. But of course it's not. And it's kind of almost 
striking in its absence there. And this chapter in Deuteronomy 4, I, I guess, seeds us for that surprise because in verse 13, like I mentioned earlier, he has declared to you his covenant, which he's commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments. So that's what we're not to add to or sub- subtract from. And it's worse even than the Acts story of the Jerusalem Council. Jesus uses rhetorical framing of adding to. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, here is an addition to that that takes it one step further that is warranting your attention. Am am I misreading that? I, I feel when Jesus says that, that he's, if anything, adding to the law. He's adding where there was a, a deficient misunderstanding, and he's clarifying. Okay, there's something else that jumped out while you were talking, Ken, and I'd like your advice on this. Uh, the, the The passage talks a lot about doing, do these things. And uh, I think I mentioned in a previous recording, or was it before or after our recording, uh, you know, the, the sort of hallmark of Western Greek-based theology, the, the uh, I think, therefore I am, and we do a lot of thinking, we do a lot of questioning about what are we? Yeah, I think that that featured a little bit in our discussion last week. Right. Whereas the, the, the ancient, the the mind revealed in, in the Old Testament, the, 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 tip, the paradigm revealed rather, is, is not what are you, but what do you do? Mm. And this is very clearly do do these mm. commandments, do these commandments, do these commandments. We we have this concept of someone being we are a sinner. We we have uh, uh, we have defects, but we not only have defects in behaviour. We have defects in our tendencies, in our desires, and that's pulled out very strongly in the New Testament, very explicitly. Uh, when it comes to the law, though, can no one's ever brought before you because they wanted to steal something? <laughs> This seems to me to be a sort of resolution between this sort of uh, contrast we're sensing between the language of of this passage as it describes the covenant and it says perform the covenant. It's something you do. Do these things and you've performed the covenant. That's, that's really good. I wanted to jump on that verb actually because we usually say keep the commandments, don't we? Mm. Whereas in here the verb is to perform the commandments. And I like that a lot better than keep. It's proactive. We're talking out of our modern context again because we can't do anything else. But it's the difference between a binary switch and a, a, a gradient of performance or improvement. You know what I mean? You so keep it or you keep, don't. You, you keep it or you don't, right? So if you've kept it, good job. You've ticked the box, you're going to heaven. Yeah. Mm. If you haven't kept it, bad job. Big, big red cross for you, off to hell. Perform means you can do it badly... Yeah. Or you can do it well, or you can do it even better. Yeah. It means it, it's a growth mindset as opposed to a limiting mindset, which is a much more psychologically a much better way for people to approach trying to do good things that are hard, is to approach it not with the idea of I either succeed at this or I fail, and if I fail it's absolute, but to approach it with the idea of this is something that I will try to get better at. It's very good, Luke. Mm. Well, and this 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 ties in really nicely to what Lachlan was saying about the thing that Jesus added to the commandments, where he talked about internal adherence as opposed to your external behavior. Well, because yes, it's it, one second. Uh, it, it's very possible, for example, to to not murder. Right. That's that's an easy one to quote unquote keep. But 
it's very easy to want to kill someone. <laughs> they give you all sorts of reasons for it. Or, or just to wish ill on them. Exa- well, exactly. Just to yeah. wish someone ill. To have vengeful thoughts in your head, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus talks quite a lot about that. And in that context of the, the internal performance of the commandment, then even with something very sort of binary as murder, there is, you can do it better or worse, depending on what's going on in your own head. Mm. Sorry, Cam, you go. Yes, I've been, I've been really interested in all those comments, and I think, I think that I'm going to tuck them away for, if I am asked ever to preach, because I think that there's a good sermon in that. Uh, my translation, Locke doesn't use the word uh, perform, it uses the word observe. And Luke, you mentioned that we're not reading that, the original language, we're relying on the translations. But the difference in connotation between keeping it, uh, something, observing it, and performing mm. it is huge. It so, is big. <laughs> I, I read I read them once a day and I'm done. But but what I was going to address is this is this the law being prescribed at different levels. When when Melissa um is teaching that's Melissa's my wife. She teaches piano. When she's teaching a beginner, she says to them, You must you must curve your fingers thus. Don't play with flat fingers. Play with the front nice fat pads on the front of your fingers. And we're gonna do some exercises, that's really good. Now it must be done this way. Piano playing is about doing it this way, and and she teaches songs, and it's uh, and and when she'll put a song up, she'll say, "Now this this music has been prescribed in this way by the composer, and this is what the symbols mean, and this is what's happening, and this and and uh, that's what you must do." And suddenly, when you start reaching about sixth, seventh, or eighth grade, she says to the students, "Now look, uh, this song goes for ten minutes." And if you play it all the same, even if all the notes are right, it's, it's, it's not going to carry any sense of musicality. I want you to go home and write a story that fits this song. I want you to think about its mood, about its flow, about its ebb and flow, about, about the rises and the climaxes and the surprises. Look here, the composer's obviously building up to a resolution at this point, and suddenly he modulates and it goes into a minor key. Um, what does that remind you of? And um, I, you know, in a similar vein, I remember seeing a, a YouTube talk by a choral conductor who said that he used to paint a picture, a timeline, a long strip of canvas, and he would paint as moving down the campus something representative of the mu- of what he wanted his music to come out like uh, before he composed a piece, and and the truth still is that when you're a concert pianist. Whether or not the song is a good song depends on what you do. It does depend on whether your fingers are, are curved in that way and whether, whether you have an even pressure as you run up the scales and whether you do all those technical aspects. And it, it does totally depend on whether you've played the right notes in the right sequence. Uh, but it also completely depends on, on something much deeper. There's a, there's a mm. sort of a deep... And, and to... And to say to say to a student, look, you just need to stop concentrating on 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 the fingers, and I want you to think about where this is going. Where's it going? You're not really adding or subtracting anything to the music. You're just you're just describing it at a different level, and and that is, I think, what Christ is doing to the Pharisees in the New Testament. I, and and really, what the New Testament church is claiming in Acts. I, I don't think they, in their mind, were subtracting anything of the essence from God's covenant or the law. The, yeah, those instructions great. served served a purpose at that time, and they were looking for that deeper expression 
and um, you know we should do the same. But but it really does it really does um, bring the lie to this faith uh, works debate because there, there need not be any debate between that. The execution as the musician still depends on on executing mm. things. You you yeah. can't just have a wonderful picture in your head and sit on the piano stool and look at the keyboard. Unless you're playing four minutes thirty-three, I guess. Yeah. Which I would encourage our, our listeners to look up on YouTube. It's a song that's consi- consists entirely of silence. But for every mm. other piece of music, you do actually have to do something. So, if I could throw one other word into this, um, Luke, you're correct that that we're limited by translations. I have I have looked up a couple. I have a New American Standard version beside me, and that is a very formal translation. It does use um, the same as my ESV, the word perform, but the message paraphrases it in a way that I really love. Mm. He announced his covenant, the ten words, by which he commanded you to live. Then he wrote them down on two slabs of stone. So you can keep the commandments, you can perform them, or Cam, you can observe them. In the message, it's simply we are to live them. And that's that's a really useful verb, I think, to have in mind in this context. Mm. And, and surely, surely... You know, one of the central points of the passage we read is that a life lived the way God wants it lived is just a better life. Yeah, Ken, there's something that stuck in my mind from a previous conversation we've had. Um, I, I don't think this one was on air. But you expressed to me the opinion that the answer, that, that a good life, whatever constitutes a good life, whatever it is, is not an answer to a question that begins with, if I could choose, would I rather which is the question that dominates everything in modern life. If you could choose, would you rather do this or would you rather do that? And one of the things that's in this passage is God is saying, I, I, I am going to choose. And you, you don't have the strong capacity. If, if you can follow this, you will, you will achieve a good life. And we, we I don't think, at least, it, I wouldn't trust myself very far. Um, my own opinion, no, it's not quite true. It's not my own opinion. It's my own ability to execute I don't think I don't think I'd make a good guru to instruct people about a good life. There's a personal context here to Deuteronomy that might be in, informative just to recall, and it it comes out very clearly a few verses on uh, past where we stopped. Verse uh, twenty, talking about the Exodus. Verse twenty-one. Um, Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, for I must must die in this land. This is Moses writing, and Moses has been instructed that he will not lead the Israelites into the promised land. And I think that most of the listeners are going to be familiar with that story. You can can look it up. Um, it, It comes down in a way that I find personally slightly harsh, but it does come down to a story about the context of of obedience and God's instruction. And I wonder whether recognizing these verses we are reading in Deuteronomy 4 about the covenant being the performance of obedience to God's law, to God's will, might be informed slightly by just reflecting on, at least according to the sort of established uh, tradition of these books, the the mindset of the author writing it. I'm not quite sure at all times exactly what the most appropriate resolution of the faith works debate is, but I'm quite certain that the devil would like nothing more than for us to debate it at length. Yeah. Um, 
and 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 to the exclusion of everything else. And yes. and Luke, let's 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 pick up on your point. And in in the coming week, we can each of us strive to perform and perhaps uh, focus less on uh, whether we've kept it or not, but whether we are performing it better and better each day. And mm. uh, perhaps that's the path to a good life. So uh, thank you, everyone, for joining in on our discussion. We have succeeded in in shortening our, our podcast a little and uh that helps us a, a bit in the edit but we we don't expect this to be the end of any discussion and we welcome any comments that are emailed in so please do that uh sabbath school from home at gmail.com and as always please share this podcast with anyone that you you think might find it useful uh it costs takes us no extra effort for the for the podcast to be downloaded 100 times than it does for one and it's sitting there. And if you if you think you know anyone who, who would find it useful, please share it with them. And if you have any comments or feedback, please share that with us. And we look forward to you joining us next week.